Hello and welcome back to We Not Me, the podcast where we explore how humans connect to get stuff done together. I'm Dan Hammond. And I am Pia Lee. It's lovely to see you, Pia. And today's show is a big old beefy topic that I know is close to our hearts. We're going to be talking about inclusion and it's, yeah, it's a big, it's a big one. Looking forward to digging into that with you. It's one of those motherhoody ones that you could just gloss over, but I think we're not going to do that. We're actually going to get much deeper into it. Agreed. And you know, you and I have talked about this before. We got a bit. We got history in the past. We got history, haven't we? Yeah, we have. And this really dug up for me. Well, to be honest with you, it's something I've thought about for a couple of decades now. But when I was working in the states, it it reminded me there was a, a big hire of some senior leader, and and it went to a woman who was Hispanic and she was also gay. So she was, in terms of diversity stats, she was a threefer, you know. She, <laughs> and, she and, seriously, um, that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and she got Did the you job. Got <laughs> and I must admit, <laughs> leave it, I, I must admit there was talk among the, you know, predominantly white male community that she wasn't really the one, best one for the job and she got it because she's a threefer or whatever and it ticks off. And it really gave me pause for thought at the time because I thought, actually, I do value that idea of a meritocracy. You know, the best person should get the job. I've always thought that. I had always thought that. But I thought, you know, as I've my thoughts have matured over time, I've realized actually there's something bigger at play here. And that is actually what sort of company do you want? Do you want something that is homogeneous, just the same. And, but even bigger than that, what sort of society do you want? Do you want people to be, do you want to be diverse and for people included? Or do you want to keep on this same, plowing this same furrow? And I realized to actually achieve that bigger goal, you've got to take some bold choices and, and make sure that people are getting the opportunities that will take you in that direction. 100%. And, you know, our behaviors always lag behind. People have traveled for hundreds thousands of years and we do have you know a diverse society we've got people from all corners of the world but it's how we behave and that's what we're going to dig into today because i think actually this is inward this is about our choices this is about what we think exactly this is not about policy and all the superficial stuff exactly and just like i had to face it starts with mindset what's important to me and so we are going to be talking today to marsha ramroop who is she's an inclusion advocate i would say and that's her profession but she has a really interesting story and some great science behind this topic and of course as it's we not me some really practical tips on what we can all do to move towards that better world Marsha, a warm welcome to We Not Me. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, no, it's so brilliant. Thank you so much for asking me to join in this conversation. It's an really absolute to it. pleasure. Absolute pleasure. You've got some great points to make, and I'm really looking forward to hearing, hearing your thoughts on how humans connect to get stuff done. So, before we hear from you in more detail about all of that, I'm going to pick one of these lovely conversation starter hit cards. me hit me with the cards <laughs> oh my goodness i kid you not oh this, come on sometimes sometimes they deliver an absolute belter that just total random my biggest bias is oh no oh gosh i have said well i've just i know i'm a biased i mean to be human is to be biased so i guess I always think I'm right. I just always, I assume <laughs> I'm right about everything and that my point of view is absolute. And then therefore I feel a confirmation bias. I'm always looking to have my own 
viewpoints confirmed. So then recognizing that in myself has been quite a learning experience over the last 14 years. And I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that I'm really aware of that one, managing it all the time. Well, that is work in progress for most of us, actually. So tell us a bit about yourself, Marcia. So who are you? How did you come to be? What's your potted history? Yeah, well, you know, I tend to say that everyone's favourite subject is themselves, but that's probably just me. <laughs> and I might end up going uh, for quite some time. So just rein me in, rein me in when you need to, you know. We'll cut you bit. off after 30 yeah. minutes when the podcast <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, my name's Marsha Ramroop. As my name may suggest, I am uh, of Trinidadian heritage. So both my parents were born and brought up in Trinidad, which and then loads of Indians in the Caribbean and quite a lot of people don't really recognise that. But um, yeah, my parents came over part of the latter end of the Windrush generation to the UK. And for those who, the global audience who don't know, Windrush uh, refers to a ship that brought the first Caribbeans over post-war to the UK to help staff public services like the NHS and um, transport and so on. And so a lot of Caribbeans uh, settled in the UK during the 50s, 60s and 70s. And I was first generation, me and my brother. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about this, but both both my brother and I were privately educated, which I think gives me the ability to what I call hold white spaces, which again, we talk a little bit more about in a bit. And I used my ability to speak and to... to um, uh, I'm a bit of an entertainer at heart, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and I ended up going into radio. I started working radio when I was 15. And I broadcast my first radio Sunday breakfast show when I was 15. And I had the, had a 30-year career in broadcasting. I went to uni and did my undergraduate, postgraduate in, in broadcasting. And also did a postgraduate management and ended up in leadership. But whilst I was working in local radio at the BBC, that's where I really started to think about how we work with our communities and how do we give our communities a voice and how do we ensure that we tell stories the way that people wanted them told, not the way that, you know, anyone centrally wanted them told? And it's through doing that and going into leadership in local radio and news editor and running radio stations that I started to be more strategic about how we did that. And as a result of doing that, I discovered cultural intelligence, which is understanding why we want to do diversity and inclusion and knowing what we want those outcomes to look like, there's a missing bit in between, which is the how. And I believe that cultural intelligence is the how, and uh, it's proven to, to work and develop my side hustle called Unheard Voice Consultancy, which I then went off to do after leaving the BBC. And then I spotted a job <laughs> that I really wanted. <laughs> which was Director of Inclusion at the Royal Institute of British Architects, REBA. And uh, they said they wanted me, so I went toddled off and I did that for a couple of years. Long story short, I ended up leaving that role, having been hugely successful and really made, started to make the impression I wanted to make in the architecture environment because I really believe that architecture in the built environment holds the key to inclusion so if we think that people, places and power create our public spheres, then to be able to influence the creation of inclusive spaces for me 
was the ability to influence the creation of an inclusive society, which is why I was so committed and still am committed to working in in architecture and the built environment because I really want to continue with that. So back in Unheard Voice Consultancy, I'm doing cultural intelligence and strategic inclusion for architecture and built environment. I'm going to ask you a really low level question, which so I'm going to I'm going to start there. When you started at 15 in broadcasting, what was your dream then? Well, I think at the time I was quite immature, and for me it was just about I love the sound of my own voice. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to be on the radio. Come on, don't you come listen to me. Listen to me. <laughs> I've got so many interesting things to say about this piece of music or that. Um, and for me, and I was reading the news, and I so I, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was really about. It was a very superficial at the time thing, and I didn't really. I just knew that I was an entertainer and I could be a performer. And for me, just the development of the understanding of how powerful a medium it was came through actually doing the work and really then getting to grips. Actually, journalism is a really important job, you know, to be able to tell stories and to share, to hold up that mirror to society. And so, you know, quite a few people have said to me, well, how do you move from journalism into inclusion? And I'm like, this, this not a big leap here. Because again, the holding up that mirror piece is very much what the diversity and inclusion is about for me. It's not about managing different people's identities. It's an introspective piece of work. Hold up the mirror to yourself and say, what is it about me that needs to change so I can be more inclusive of you, whoever you are? Because people are multi-layered and you can't put people in boxes. You can't put individual in boxes. Because when we look at biological difference, if you like, there's more difference within a prescribed group. There's more diversity within a group than there are between groups. So again, to go down another rabbit hole here, (laughs) when you ask me about radio, I'm going to end up talking about the Human Genome Project. (laughs) <laughs> which <laughs> determined we thought you'd never mention it yeah. carry on don't <laughs> worry so say for example if an alien were to land on planet earth and to classify all the life forms on earth they would find humans singularly boring Because in terms of our genomes, there's only variation in 0.1% of them between all humans on the planet. So there are many species and subspecies of birds, bacteria, even cats. But of humans, we are just one homogenous race. And so when we look at things like our skin colour or our gender or sex or our, I don't know, uh, our, our abilities, there's still greater difference within a group like let's say women than there are between women and men and a lot of those differences that we ascribe are cultural not biological and for a cultural question we need a cultural answer which is why cultural intelligence is so important you didn't know asking me about a low-level radio question was going to end up that was great the dream ended up with genomics i love it (laughs) i was going to say actually that the beautiful thing about radio is that it is very democratic and inclusive. I don't want to psychoanalyze you. I don't know you. But there is something about getting your voice heard and being inclusive in that medium. So maybe there's something that draws us. So 
Help me understand what you mean by inclusion. So what are we thinking of? Help me to define it. So I'm going to row back just a tiny bit and just talk about diversity as well, if I may. A lot of people talk about diversity as being you know, race, gender, sexuality, and all these different siloed groups. But actually, all diversity is, is the mix of visible and invisible difference. Everybody is part of diversity. And actually, when we're talking about diversity, we're misnaming a different issue. And I like to throw this out. <laughs> Lovely little statistic. I'm going to ask you both if you know the answer to this. And Dan, if, you, if I've told you this one already, then... You know, Pretend that you yeah. don't know. Yeah. No, no. So what percentage of the UK population is white, able-bodied, heterosexual men based in London and the Southeast? I'd say under 10%. Yeah, the actual answer is 3.1% of the UK population. It's white, able-bodied, heterosexual men based in London and the South East. And when we think about who runs our politics, our economics, our media, our culture, our tech, our, you know, everything, then we're looking actually, what we're, the real issue that we need to diagnose is not one of diversity, it's one of underrepresentation. Because for every white, able-bodied, heterosexual man based in London who is working in government, shall we say, there should be 97 others who have different identities to that. But maybe that isn't necessarily the case. So when we're talking about diversity, I think really what we're talking about is managing underrepresentation in our businesses, for example, when we're talking about diversity. So then inclusion is the act of valuing, respecting and accepting difference, whatever that difference might look like. So diversity is the fact of visible and invisible difference and inclusion is the act. And the impact of bringing those two things together is equity. So you have equitable outcomes as a result. So inclusion for me is something that you need to work at it is the organisational imperative, if you like, if we're talking from a business behaviour perspective. And so going into organisations to help them to be inclusive is about developing behaviours. It's not just about having amazing policies or staff networks or mentoring schemes, because you can have the best, most amazing policies and you can have really engaged staff networks and you can have award-winning mentoring schemes. But if you don't have the behaviours to implement those policies, to support and listen to those networks and to engage properly with those mentoring schemes rather than just putting them forward for rewards, then you're not going to actually create inclusion in your organisation. So inclusion is the act, but how do you create those behaviours? And that's why you need the cultural intelligence piece. I suppose the million dollar question is, how do you do that, Marsh? Because well, well, we know that the, a lot of these things are driven by mindset. So you've got to presumably could dig quite deep to actually make the bit above the, uh, the water level of the iceberg. <laughs> how do you go about that? Yeah, so it is that, and this is where, you know, the issues of discomfort, there's issues of defensiveness, there are issues of fear. So let me describe what cultural intelligence is, and then I can sort of break it down how it's then implemented. So cultural intelligence, CQ, Q stands for quotient, because it's a measure as well as an improvable skill. It's the capability to work and relate effectively with people who are different from you. 
It's a really important piece of teamwork. How do you work and relate effectively with people who are different from you? So the, the question, the research question behind it has been now been asked for a quarter of a million people across you know, 170 countries around the world. What's the difference between those that succeed in today's multicultural, globalized world and those that fail? What's the difference between success and failure when wanting to work and relate effectively across difference? And uh, the answer keeps coming back that you need four capabilities. And the first is CQ drive, your motivation. Do you actually want to work and relate effectively with those who are different from you? And uh, how do you motivate yourself? How do you use intrinsic and extrinsic motivators to motivate yourself to work and relate effectively with others? And really important part of the drive piece is your self-efficacy, your confidence. So how do you manage that fear? How do you manage discomfort? How do you manage your defensiveness, which will activate when you're faced with difference? Your bias will activate. And being able to really break that down comes down to the fact of how do you manage to lean into that discomfort? And sometimes it's about calling it out right at the beginning to say, we're going to be talking about some things and you're going to feel uncomfortable. And you'll know you're going to feel uncomfortable because it's going to be like that little prickle at the back of your neck and your stomach is going to start to tighten. And you're going to feel like, oh, I don't want to hear this. And when you start to feel that, stop. Take a moment and acknowledge that that's how you're feeling. And then you have a choice at that point. You can walk away, which is a perfectly valid thing to do, but realise that if you walk away, you will not grow you'll not learn, you'll not be any different from when you started the conversation, or you can choose to lean into that discomfort, knowing that that will lead to change and that you will learn and grow. That's the first capability, CQ drive motivation. And I think it's the most under-recognized piece of any kind of change is do you want to do it? The second is CQ knowledge. What do you know? What do you need to know about lots of different lived experiences? And that's not just, you know, racialized difference or national difference. It's about different values and norms. It's about business systems. So how language of architecture is different to the language of, of graphic design or how an organization like the BBC might work with a small production company, those kind of different cultures as well different leadership styles. And I say that's the biggest piece of the puzzle because you can never know everything about everything and everything about everyone. So you have to surround yourself with that diversity of lived experience and listen to those voices very different from your own. The third piece of the puzzle is CQ strategy. And this is where you need to stop to think about what you're thinking about. Because if you're motivated and you have some knowledge and you go straight into action without stopping to check your assumptions, to plan for working and relating across difference and being hugely personally self-aware, organizationally self-aware, if you don't do those things, you'll act in a tokenistic and stereotypical way. So it's really important to stop, slow down, think and create procedural changes to mitigate the impact 
of hidden bias. That's what that CQ strategy is about. And then finally, CQ action. Ultimately, people judge us on our behaviors. It's the reputational piece because the drive, knowledge, and strategy is happening in your head. It's happening in the background. Ultimately, we need to go out and do the action. And being adaptable in the way we speak, in the way we act, in understanding different situations and doing it well on the fly, that is what the CQ action piece is about. And you can be measured against all these four capabilities and therefore understand how to improve. And that's it's proven that if you're high in CQ, you will act inclusively, uh, very consciously inclusively. And that is the difference between success and failure when working and relating effectively with others. And so a really big, important piece of work, but it starts by recognising in itself that the work needs to be done. And it starts with a mirror holding. That's fascinating. I mean, it, so I've got a million questions, <laughs> but I think I'm going to, I'm going to, again, I'm going to ask a quite a broad one. I mean, let's take the UK. What's the research telling us? What's our cult- cultural intelligence? Has it improved? Excellent question. And I think uh, the research says, if we look at the research coming out of the UN, for example, about how the UK is working relating effectively across difference, it's not good. So the Special Rapporteur for Race and Racism, for example, has done two or three reports now about the increase of racism in the UK since Brexit and has warned against a number of the different policies around immigration, for example. So not good is the short answer to that question. And anyone can just uh, go online and have a look at those reports coming out of the UN with regard to the UK's uh, current government's policy on difference. And I have to say, this isn't specific to the UK. If we look across the world globally, we've seen a rise in polemics. And this isn't in itself a problem if we're not able to have the conversation about why is it that we cannot talk to each other well and disagree well about our different perspectives? Why are we struggling to hold the two truths of we and me? How is it that we cannot understand that actually as a collectivist, uh, we also need to understand an individual's needs and that an individual also can look at the needs of the collective. Why is it that we can't be competitive, but also collaborative? And this is what the cultural intelligence piece actually helps us identify, but also helps us negotiate. If I may throw another load of statistics at you, (laughs) bits of research. So amazing psychologist, Dr. Timothy Wilson, you may have heard of. He wrote a book, Stranger to Ourselves, Discovering the Adaptive Unconscious. 20 years ago, he pulled together all the research done about uh, our biases and the way our brains work. I'll ask you this one. Have I told you this one as well, Dan? At any given moment... How many pieces of information is your brain processing any given second, if you have access to all five senses? Well, I would probably say that was fairly high until you're going through the menopause, then it's potentially about sort of... (laughs) I'll give you four options. (laughs) (laughs) At any given moment, 
your brain processes 11,000, 110,000, 1 million or 11 million pieces of information. Yeah, I'd say 11 million. 11 million is the correct answer. Pia gets a round of applause for that one. The menopause cut through. She cut Cut through. through. This is loads. (laughs) But at any given moment, how many pieces of information can you consciously process of that 11 million? So I'll give you four options again. Four 40, 400, or 4,000? I think it, it may just be me, but I think it's four. Four? Be any advanced in four? Yeah, four or 40. The answer's 40. You can give yourselves a little bit more credit. It is 40. Yeah. So at any wow. given moment, your brain is processing 10,999,960 bits of information of which you are completely unaware. But if you think about it, if you, you know, rouse yourself into consciousness every morning, if you have to think, I've got to swing my legs off the bed, I've got to walk to the toilet, I've got to release my sphincter, I've got to blink, I've got to breathe, you wouldn't actually be able <laughs> to function as a human. But yeah, exactly. So... A lot of things happen unconsciously because they have to. It's a human biological need. But at the same time, that is where we shortcut information and it's where we create bias. And I think if we were to really stop to think about, okay, to be human is to be biased, you know, we have to shortcut these bits of information, then we can actually start to realise, well, this is something I need to consciously do something about. And that's where the cultural intelligence piece comes in. We shouldn't blame ourselves. Maya Angelou says, forgive yourself for not knowing something before you learned it. And I think that if we can just recognize that the reason we feel and are a certain way is because we are, and we just simply need to navigate away from that. But we're creating biases all the time. Like if I were to ask you, when's the last time you memorised a telephone number? 1993, I think. (laughs) Exactly. Right? (laughs) Exactly. You know, you you put it straight into your phone. My two girls, they have their phones and I couldn't tell you what they're, they've had them for years. I couldn't tell you what their numbers are. And the way they memorised our phone numbers is they learnt a little song. (laughs) Now they're teenagers, (laughs) they're not really singing it. But anyway, the point is, These technological changes, environmental changes, political changes, financial, they're all creating these shortcuts all the time. And I think that's really interesting because hearing you talk and thinking again, I was sort of like bringing that broader, that radio analogy, FM and AM. There's a part where we're encouraged, as you're talking around this cultural intelligence, to be bigger than ourselves, to, you know, love thy neighbor, to embrace the difference. But on the other side, there is a nasty intent around division and it is right across the world and we are being pitted against each other in some kind of individualistic duel. There, I've said it. That is my beef and that is pervasive. That is in every country in different ways. And then we learn, we sort of become this ridiculous survival of the fittest again, which I thought we'd evolve beyond that. See, Pia, for me, I think that they are also part of the system. They they obviously try the the maintenance of the status quo, the sowing of division to maintain a status quo where in the UK's case, it's 3.1% remain in their power positions. Those help to create that situation and maintain that situation. They're also victims 
of a system. I'm going to, if I may, it's just your thinking and your saying that made me think of this. I've just grabbed from my shelf How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. <laughs> it's a bit, <laughs> which is a bit of a joke, isn't it? It's up to the minute research. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Written in 1936, right? So it's very gendered in its language. and But because it was written in 1936, Dale Carnegie's frame of reference is Al Capone. And uh, this is what he says about Al Capone. He says, suppose you had Al Capone's environment and experiences. You would then be precisely what he was and where he was. For it is those things and only those things that made him what he was. The only reason, for example, that you're not a rattlesnake is that your mother and father weren't rattlesnakes. You deserve very little credit for being what you are. And remember, the people who come to you irritated, bigoted, unreasoning, deserve very little discredit for being what they are. Feel sorry for the poor devils. Pity them. Sympathise with them. Say to yourself, there, but for the grace of God, go I. And I think there's a piece to play in helping everyone see, helping that the education piece, we've just got to keep doing it. We've just got to keep the awareness raising. We've just got to keep everyone recognising that we all have a part to play in recognising the systems in which we live. And rather than fanning around the edges and managing symptoms, let's try to take apart the systems that create discrimination and dismantle those. It's a fundamentally different way of thinking. So Einstein says, well, one, one of the definitions uh, attributed to him is that definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. What he actually said was that humans need to reach a new level of consciousness in order to create different outcomes. And that kind of cognitive evolution is something we have to continuously think about. We need to name the issues so we can rename them and we can tackle them so we can get to different outcomes. I love the idea, Marsha, of being compassionate with those people that we see, we could easily see as an enemy in this. It's a great reminder. And actually, it's very hard to sort of say, I think we should all love each other, but not you. You, you don't count because you're one of the nasty ones <laughs> that's in power. So I think it's, it's a really good reminder. But I've, And I've also really interested in this motivation side, because as things develop, as you say, I, I, I see that progress is being made, but also there's a backlash to that progress. There's people wanting, obviously, not to make that happen. I think that's actually driving a lot of what we're seeing in the world. And one of the things I've seen recently is the rise of those 3.1% white men saying, yeah, but I can't leave my job now because I'll never get another job because I'm a white 50-year-old man or whatever. So, And they start to then in a way ridiculously but thinking rattlesnake understandably they feel like they become the victim now i'm i have very little room tolerance for that viewpoint and i've been arguing with people against it but that's another motivational piece that we have to deal with isn't it at that deep motivational level why would people act in this way that's 
in the interest of the collective, but actually is it against their self-interest? It's quite entrenched, I suppose, but what's the, I'm sure you've seen a lot of it. Yeah. So the quote that I said to you said that, that, that it, it, I attribute it to, to Dr. Adam Rutherford, but other people have said it. When all you've ever known is privilege, equality feels like oppression. Mm. And so recognizing that actually other people have not had the kind of, you know, you, I know people have to work hard to get where they are, but some people definitely have to work harder because of various identities or characteristics that are attributed to them. They may not call it upon themselves to say, well, okay, look at me, I'm a brown, white, bi, married woman who has children. And, you know, all these different identities that I have, are they supposed to be discounted when I go for it? Yes, they should, but they're not. And so, you know, definitely being able to recognise that other people have had a harder time may mean, okay, you're going back into the job market. And there's more competition out there, but that's actually the fairer state of affairs. And so we talk about the meritocracy, but actually it isn't because being good at something, I mean, we've seen how people who just simply aren't good enough still rise around us in, you know, organizations, in leadership positions. And those who've had to work really hard, got a ton load more qualifications, whatever it might be, just aren't getting there because something about them doesn't quite fit. Come on, is that really right? But the thing is, there is a perception that there's some kind of limit to progress, human progress, or, or you know, the value that we have in our society. There isn't. This is actually about growing opportunity for all. And actually, there are so many opportunities out there for us to be a thriving society. So rather than having a small pot, actually, what we're really looking at is a bigger cake. If everyone is given the opportunity to thrive in the way that we could. So it's a fallacy that anyone heading out back out into the marketplace won't find a new job because, you know, simply there are not so many to go around or whatever. Actually, it's about thinking differently, that new level, that cognitive evolution and that new level of consciousness that we all need to adopt so that we can thrive. I think you mentioned fit as well there. I think thinking through the, in, by the way, so when I first came across unconscious bias, I was actually one of those people that I don't have any unconscious biases without noticing that actually it's the unconsciousness of it that makes them a bit tricky. But one of them was that I was doing, if I look back on my career now, one of the things we used to do was interview for fit. And I've realized that's problematic in itself. And you just mentioned fit. And I'm guessing now you have to take a different view of that. Do they, not do they fit because they like us, but do they fit because they bring more to us? How should we view sort of that idea? Should we chuck it out? Should we see it differently? What's a good approach there? So we talk about culture fit in an organization or a team, but actually you should be looking at culture ad. So as long as someone has the skills, abilities and capabilities to do the role, there are always going to be clashes and conflicts. But how do you manage that well? And actually, there is that fallacy that if you have a diverse team, you're going to have more innovative and better outcomes. And that's a fallacy because 
if you have a diverse team where you have a lot of difference and you brought in culture add, but then you don't have the behaviours to make sure that all of those different viewpoints are listened to and acted on and consciously you're able to manage that difference using cultural intelligence, then actually you're going to have a poorer performing team than if everybody was the same. And so what the research shows is that actually you'll be six times more innovative if six or eight times, sorry, forgive me, should have checked my stats before coming on, but it's definitely more (laughs) (laughs) if you're diverse and inclusive with high cultural intelligence. So you bring in the culture ad, but then you have to have the behaviours to allow that creative conflict to reach those better solutions because that's what you're hiring for when you're bringing in someone who's going to bring a different perspective. You don't want them to assimilate. You need to have a different culture, that inclusive culture, where they can thrive and they can bring their difference and have that opportunity to grow your organisation. That was something I took from one of your posts, Marsha, was was something that we've actually explored on this on on this show to to look at how you can actually bring people in but that ranking of team effectiveness from a diverse but non-inclusive team is beaten by a homogeneous team is beaten by a diverse plus inclusive team and i think that's just such a handy thing to to remember that you've got to really do the work on this inclusion not just hire different people and hope it's going to work because actually the forces can actually throw that thing throw that team apart that's right and um the main point i would say here is about the importance of leadership to come back to your areas of expertise here this is from gruner and whitaker they have a book called school culture rewired from 2015 they said the culture of any organization is shaped by the worst behaviors leaders are willing to tolerate And so I flip that on its head and say the culture of any organisation can be shaped by the best behaviours leaders are willing to demonstrate. And by best behaviours, I tend to point then to the cultural intelligence piece and therefore that ability to create that inclusive, psychologically safe environment for diverse teams to thrive. And so in order for anyone to be thinking about, well, how do I create great teams, really do that leadership piece and embed the best kind of cultures, it, for me, will always come back to cultural intelligence. We have a question in our platform, Squadify, straight talking without offence, and that ability to be able to play the ball, not the person, and for it to be safe enough for the answer. But, you know, we do have great tactics. We avoid it. We try and be nice. And that's your tokenism. You know, we just, but we're not really getting to the crux of the matter. And I think unless we do our own work, we can't judge on somebody else's. And it's whether we're prepared to do that, really, is a key point for me. You know, this isn't going to be solved, solved by others doing it. It's going to be solved by us individually doing our own stuff and collectively making that stance. Absolutely. And, and I, tend to say that it's by changing your world that you can change the world. The personal responsibility piece is the key to any kind of change because you can only change yourself. You can't force change on others. So that might be a cue for our closing tip, Marsha. Where do people, this has been 
wonderful and there's so much there and thank you for all the science as well it's just i'm sure our listener will be there will be um just full of new things to uh, well a motivation actually to try something new what should they do where, where can they make a start so there are two things. So obviously I would point people to um, finding more more about cultural intelligence and uh, the the home of cultural intelligence, the Cultural Intelligence Centre is at culturalq.com. But the main tip I think for everyone to take away is I want you to look at your, uh, your phones, your social media, especially your messaging apps, and look at your top 25 contacts. And I want you to look at those and uh, start to look at where are the gaps in the kinds of people that you engage with. And this isn't just about age and race, sexuality, but it might be profession. It might be geographical diversity. It might be physical ability, disability, anything like that. Just really start to look at yourself and who do you listen to? Who do you surround yourself with? Who do you believe? And then start to explore what those gaps are and to start making that step into leaning into that discomfort to discover why you have those gaps and look to fill them. That's quite profound, I think, because I think we might all uncomfortably find that we've surrounded ourselves with people that are rather like ourselves and that then makes us feel safe. So I think that is a level of discomfort, which... Again, how can you have diversity if you're surrounded by the same voices just in, in an echo chamber? Ironically, I think, Marsha, it brings us back to the start. It makes us all feel right as well, doesn't it? <laughs> we never get challenged. So it's very nice to have all those people around us confirming our most brilliant thoughts. How awesome but, uh, we are. <laughs> yeah, it's just the best. It's just the best. But that is too much comfort and it should set the alarm bells ringing that we need to get into a bit of discomfort. Marsha, thank you so much for joining us. We've had a wonderful conversation yeah, with you. Yeah, it's been and, wonderful. Uh, and best of luck on your mission. You're doing such good work. And I know these are challenging times, but it's really wonderful to hear someone trying to reverse the flow. So thank you. Be brilliant. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness, that quote, when all you've known is privilege, equality can look like oppression. I don't think I've really felt that oppression myself, but I can see that in those people I've talked to. And Thinking personally, I've had privilege. You know, I'm one of those white men who went to private school and and I haven't always recognised what advantage that gave me, but it's becoming pretty clear now. Well, it shapes the system. I mean, if you're part of the majority, part of our human nature is to want to be part of the majority. It's scary on the outside fringes. You know, when I, when I was teaching you know, 30 years ago, it was illegal to mention that you were gay and you could be sacked. And I knew that. And when you operate on the on those fringes and you're having to rely on the majority to accept you, you're not entitled to anything because you could be flicked out of the system. Well, Pierre, all I can say to you is you should try being ginger. <laughs> <laughs> I have to, yeah, I didn't want to go deep down into that trauma that you've had to carry no but joking aside yeah it did definitely shape me because of it what i realized early on was that it didn't matter how much i jumped up and down and wanted people to change it was the majority that was going to have to change and the majority somehow was judging me 
by, well, don't make it too hard on us by what you wear or how you behave or, you know, you're not going to wear Doc Martens and shave all your hair off, are you? Well, I do now, but, you know, I did. <laughs> but, but it's interesting. It's interesting because I think we're all afraid, actually, to be on our own. We are really afraid. We are, we've talked about this before. We need to connect. So then what we do is then we judge other people and we sort of make them outer. You can form tribes or you try to integrate or form tribes. Yeah, absolutely. Which is not inclusion. So we've got to rise above that. And that's what I really liked. That there's this whole sort of the key parts of this cultural intelligence. It's almost like inclusive intelligence, you know? It is, yeah. You've got to really hone that skill. And I think some of those things are very visible. I think uh, there's other pieces I thought was really interesting about thinking styles, for example, how they're they're the invisible part that Marsha talked about, but we can exclude people because they don't think like us. And and, um, it's a real... Definitely a real skill, this, but I love the way she hit on that motivation. And it's a very we, not me thing to think about, actually. How can we all have greater motivation to see a bigger picture, to see a better future society where people are included and build that motivation within us and then do something about it, whether that's in our teams, our families, our society, but constantly be learning to do a better job. And thank God we've got people like Marsha in the world because I think they're gonna they're gonna hold us to account, which I think is really important. Exactly, because there's work to do. I think that trans people and, you know, the neurodivergent people, they're all quite they they all need to be included now and beyond, who knows what's next. So uh but it's about having that that motivation, that attitude to include all. But that is it for this episode. You can find show notes and resources at squadify.net just click on the we not me podcast link if you've enjoyed the show please share the love and recommend it to your friends also please do give us a rating on your favorite podcast platform you can also contribute to the show by leaving us a voice note with a question or a comment just find the link in the show notes we not me is produced by mark stedman of origin thank you so much for listening it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me 